Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. A story which is familiar to you, and maybe you've heard it used on Thanksgiving before. I really don't know, but I decided to use this this morning. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Dr. N.T. Wright who is a writer and a commentator about uh, the scriptures, begins his commentary on this passage we read a few moments ago with the question, what would make you shout for joy at the top of your voice? What would make you fall on the ground, yes, flat on your face in front of someone? Maybe some of the things that you said this morning are the kinds of things uh, that would make you do that. So in the context of what we're thinking about today on this Thanksgiving Day, what is it that makes you truly thankful? Perhaps you'd be picked to join a sports team. You received a gift from someone you didn't expect. Someone paid the debt that you owed. Perhaps a doctor told you someone dear, you, uh, dear to you came through with flying colors, Calvin Rutenberg. I suspect that the Canadian professor Homa Hutfer and her family jumped and shouted for joy after she was released from an Iranian prison where she had been held for over 100 days. And we've already heard the next one. I suspect that many a Blue Jays fan jumped up and down for joy when that three-run home run knocked the Baltimore Orioles out of the postseason and put the Blue Jays in, and now look where they are. Well, after a number of examples of joy and thanksgiving in the context of the text we just read, Wright asks the same sort of question. Which then is the more surprising? The fact that one person came back, shouted for joy, and fell down at Jesus' feet? Or the fact that nine didn't? And I suspect that he is suggesting that the surprising thing is that nine did not return to give thanks. How can that be? The story that was read from Luke 17 is a relatively simple, straightforward story about Jesus, the healing of ten lepers, and thanksgiving giving, given by only one of the ten. And when we think about this story, then certainly the events of the story have something to say, first of all, about the power and the love of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, it says something about the passion of thanksgiving 
And in many ways, this particular story must have been a wake-up call to the church of the day. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 9, verse 51, we are told that Jesus resolutely determined, determinedly set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that once he got there, he was going to be crucified and he would die for those he came to save. So in a determined manner, he went from the north to the south, knowing that it was going to end up in his death. Well, on his way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, one day he, I, he entered an unidentified village. And as he was about to enter that village, ten men afflicted with leprosy met him. Leprosy was apparently a common disease in those days. It was and still is a horrible disease, also today referred to as Hansen's disease. And in accordance with the law of Moses, Leviticus 13, and because of the infectious nature of the disease, lepers were to be quarantined. They were not allowed to live among the general population. Rather, they were required to live outside of any sort of camp or town or city. And as they lived outside of the camp or the town or the city, somewhere in the wilderness, even there, as a warning to travelers or to other healthy people they might encounter, they were required to stay 100 paces or two to 300 feet I walked this auditorium in preparation for this. I thought, let me see how big this place is. And I got 75 paces from that wall to that wall. So then think about that. That's even further apart that people were, that they were standing in this particular situation. And then they were supposed to, from that distance, as a warning to people who came into their purview, they were to shout out, unclean, unclean, as a warning. It must have been a hellish life for them. Not only did they have to deal with the disease itself, which meant a sure death, but they also had to deal with incredible loneliness, the loneliness that went with it, loneliness that took them away from their families, loneliness that took them away from the rest of the people of Israel. And remember, if their families were to come and visit, they would be the distance from that wall to even maybe in somewhere in the gym, away. That's how they visited. And there were no telephones or texting or anything like that going on at that time. So there was incredible loneliness. They became, as it were, the unwanted people. I'm sure that our disability concerns ministry would have something to say about that. And so you can imagine when they're that far away and that cut off from society with that kind of a disease and with that kind of a prognosis, that they were longing for a cure. But it was unheard of because there was no known cure for Hansen's disease or for leprosy. Yet there seemed to be a new hope because somewhere along the line they did hear rumors, they did hear stories from people even though they were that far apart. They caught fact that there, that there was a rabbi in Israel who was gaining a reputation as a miracle worker. And apparently even lepers had been healed by this rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth. And this Jesus of Nazareth had become quite a sensation in the land, not only for what he said, 
but perhaps even more so for the miracles that he performed. And now it seemed that this Jesus was coming into their area. And you can imagine the excitement. The, the ten probably couldn't wait. They had been longing and they would try anything for a cure. And then came the day that they saw him coming. Of course, they didn't dare to approach Jesus. That was against the Levitical law. So they kept their legal distance, 100 paces, you know, that two to 300 feet distance. And from that distance, they cried out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. All 10 called out. Of course, after all, all 10 were in misery. All 10 were condemned to a horrible life and a horrible death. And sometimes when you're in the same boat, facing the same future, the same horror, all class distinctions, all nationalistic distinctions, even religious distinctions become unimportant and they are swept away. And that's what happened here. Nine Jews and one Samaritan were together in this boat. And what was important was that they were all human beings, they all had the same illness, and that meant they were all banished from regular society. They all lived a hellish life. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus saw them, the Bible tells us. But in this particular case, he didn't go over to them, he didn't cut short that distance. He didn't touch them. He simply ordered them to go to the priest and show themselves. You can read all about that in Leviticus 14. That was according to the law of Moses. It was the declaration of the priest concerning their illness that banned them from the community in the first place. And it was only after an examination by the priest who had the authority to pronounce a person healed that the person could once again be restored to full social and religious fellowship with the rest of the people. Notice that Jesus didn't say be healed or be cleansed or anything like that. He simply said, go show yourself to the priest. And that statement alone triggered in their minds what they had learned so well as God's people. If they had to go now and show themselves to the priest, that must mean that they would be cleansed and healed. Otherwise, why go to the priest? There's no other reason, really. And notice that all ten go. The Bible doesn't tell us that there was a whole discussion among them as to what this command could possibly mean, or was it really so? There were no statements challenging Jesus' command. No, are you kidding, Jesus? Like, we got leprosy. What's with that? What's with this? No, they went. They acted by faith. They did what Jesus commanded them to do, and they went and as they went, healing flowed through their bodies and they were made new. The white leprous spots must have disappeared. Perhaps almost like if you're watching a movie, you know, it's done by trick photography, that some kind of disease disappears from a person's body. But this isn't trick photography. This is real. 
And with great excitement, they must have looked at each other and they must have rushed over to the priest, hardly able to contain themselves. And once having gone to the priest and being declared healed, something that must have amazed the priests too, after all, leprosy was known as an incurable disease in those days, they must have then raced home to be reunited with their family and their friends. Can you picture that? Someone who had been cut off for that kind of a distance. Now all of a sudden comes charging into the house. I'm healed. I'm well. The people must have gone, oh, wait a minute, hold on, are you really? And then they could show the paper from the priest. It's true. I'm healed. From a living hell out there, cut off from everyone and everything, these men were resurrected to new life, if you will. Remember Wright's question that I began with? What would make you shout for joy at the top of your voice? What would make you fall on the ground, yes, flat on your face in front of someone? Well, being cleansed from leprosy certainly ought to. Being cleansed and then restored from that kind of a hellish separation ought to. One would think but only one went back to Jesus. Only one remembered Jesus. And upon seeing that he was healed, he stopped his trip to the priest. He went back to Jesus, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself down at Jesus' feet and thanked him over and over again, says Luke 17, verse 16. Jesus had given this man new life. All ten had desired to be healed. All ten believed that Jesus could do something about their predicament. All ten appealed to Jesus, even acknowledging him as master. All ten, in, in obedience to Jesus' command, went to the priest. All ten were healed and released from their hellish life. But only one came back to express thanks, his thanks and his love for Jesus. And he did so passionately. One writer said, the person who has forgotten to be thankful has fallen asleep in life. Ten were healed. One came back to say thanks. And then did you notice what Luke said? It's with marked emphasis that the evangelist, Luke, adds and by the way, he was a Samaritan. It's as if the writer is declaring, ten were healed, one came back. And think of it, and he was a Samaritan. It wasn't the Jews who came back, the Jews whose name even talks about rejoicing and giving thanks to God. It wasn't they who came back. It was the Samaritan who came back. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans because they weren't pure Jews anymore. They had intermarried with the Canaanites and the Jews figured that the Samaritans' understanding of the scriptures was not sound. The Samaritans, those are a suspect people. But now here is a Samaritan stopping to thank the Jewish rabbi. 
reading, when we read this, we kind of go, oh, that's interesting. When the writer, when the readers of the Gospel of Luke read this, they must have been, they must have found this very, very difficult to hear. Because what they were hearing was an indictment of how they, as Jews, handled Jesus. They were hearing this as an indictment that they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. It was an indictment of the Jews' understanding of the gospel. These were people who did not accept the gospel of grace. And beyond that, Luke records the event as also a statement about where the church was going and what was happening in the church. No longer did the Jews, as they themselves thought, have sole claim on Jesus the Messiah or on the church anymore or on the Lord anymore. All nations are welcome at Jesus' feet since he came to die for all who believe, which is precisely, of course, why Luke wrote his gospel in the first place. Jesus resolutely set his eyes to go to Jerusalem to die for the people of all nations, including the Samaritan. Mm, that was hard for the Jews to swallow. Where are the other nine, Jesus asked. He was obviously moved and touched by the thanks of the one who came back. But what about the other nine? You know, that statement always reminds me of weddings and funerals. People are usually not able to list who was there. Generally, they can, but not always. But they surely do know who was not there. They remember who did not come to pay their respects, who did not show up. Where are the other nine? Now, were the nine cold and callous men? Were they people who hated Jesus? Jesus didn't say that. He didn't even suggest that. He simply stated they did not return to praise God. He stated a fact. Only one came back. The others didn't. The nine had been obedient to Jesus in setting off to go to the priest. They had experienced Jesus' healing power, but they cared to go no further. This was almost sort of self-serving, it seems. And Jesus says to the Samaritan, rise, go, your faith has made you well. But what about those others? What about the nine? They were Jews, raised by regularly going to the synagogues, aware of the Old Testament writings, aware of God's covenant promises, aware of his relationship with his people, and so on. They had been taught about, and through the observance of all the Jewish feasts, being made aware of the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. They knew that the priest has the one who gave them the authority, who had the authority to remove them from the fellowship, and to bring them back into the fellowship with a clean, of built, uh, clean built health. But it wasn't the church people who went back to, uh, who went to give thanks, rather the foreigner among them did. It seems that the church of the day was asleep at the wheel, so to speak, more concerned with obeying the law than really giving thanks. 
It seems that the church of the day was taking things for granted. They obviously missed something of the excitement that comes from understanding the gospel, resulting in a special thanksgiving effort. The Samaritan, in contrast, understood. And he stood up, now resurrected to new life. And the Jews who were reading the Gospel of Luke must have been hit between the eyes with this analysis of their life as a church. Interesting, isn't it? We can get so used to things, so used to the Bible, so used to hearing about the Lord, so used to the church, to the treasures of salvation in Christ Jesus. Services and devotions can become so routine that our thanksgiving becomes routine and for all intents and purposes somewhat meaningless. Be careful. On more than one occasion, the Lord warns his people against simply going through the religious motions. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies in Amos 5. Our worship and thanksgiving has to be genuine, passionate, taking nothing for granted. After all, the Lord has saved us from something far worse than some physical disease. He has granted us pardon for sin and given us new life in him. The story of the healing of the ten lepers is a wake-up call to the church to retain its passion, its joy about the fact that Jesus brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that Jesus calls us to be his people. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you were not a child, now you are a child. We heard something of that yesterday from 1 Peter. And besides all of our spiritual blessings, it's easy for us to become used to having food. Of course we have food. It becomes easy for us to, to breathe, to become used to breathing. Of course we breathe. What else happens? Of course you do. To colors, to music, to athletic skill, to books to all the physical things we enjoy so much. It's so easy for us to take all those things for granted, so much so that we forget where they come from. And we get, forget something about the joyous and passionate art of thanksgiving. The person who has forgotten to be thankful has fallen asleep in life. N.T. Wright says, there's an old spiritual discipline of listing one's blessings, naming them before God and giving thanks. It's a healthy thing to do, especially in a world where we too often assume we have an absolute right to health, happiness, and every possible creature comfort. When my wife and I lived in Haiti with our children, uh, at the end of our road, right next to the home where Christian Reformed missionaries lived, there was a deep valley. It was, it was kind of a runoff gully. And basically, water was, it was supposed to be for runoff water. Makes us think, too, when the hurricane went, came through and whatever happened to that. In the earthquake, that, that, that gully, that valley, was filled with homes. A lot of poor, very, very poor people lived there. In the earthquake that took place a number of years ago, from which Haiti is still recovering, 
The people that we knew sent a message where they, they would text us, uh, they would, we, we'd get messages from them as to what was happening. And they would hear from that valley after the earthquake took place where there was absolutely no electricity, it was pitch dark, they would hear the song, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Now from our perspective, we think they're nuts. You have nothing left. Your life and your world is destroyed. And yet there's something within them. Life was hell for them. There's no question about that. Yet there was something in them that said, you know, God is still on his throne. He is still the Lord. And I am still thankful for the life that the Lord has given to me. What would make you shout for joy at the top of your voice? What would make you fall on the ground, yes, flat on your face in front of someone? One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. Thanksgiving. It's an, it's an essential part of the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus. But not only for one day, but all the time. Every moment of our lives. To the glory of his name. Amen. Let's give thanks. O oh Lord, for your word, we give thanks. For the Bible that we can read so readily in so many different formats, we praise you and we bring you glory. And we thank you, Lord, that through this simple message from the scripture this morning, we were reminded once again about the importance of thanksgiving. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may be a people whose lives resound with thanksgiving because we recognize that you are the Lord and the giver of life. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for our apathy at times. Forgive us for our taking things for granted. And we pray, O oh Lord, that through us, through your church, through your people around the world, the gospel may be proclaimed in all of its glory and all of its passion to the glory and honor of your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.